welcome to the Parley podcast at the Hindu. I'm Sohasini Heather, the diplomatic editor and your host for today. As we discuss India's neighborhood policy, is it being reworked and should it be? With me India's former foreign secretary, the former special envoy on climate change as well as the former chairman of the NSA B Sham Saran. Um, he is the author of the book, How India Sees the World, From Cortilla to the 21st Century. And my other guest is Dr. Constantino Xavier, Center for Social and Economic Progress, who earned his doctorate in South Asian Studies. He's the author of many papers on this subject. Uh, Mr. Saran, if I could start with you, recent visits in the region by Foreign Secretary Harsh Shringla to, uh, to Maldives, to Nepal, to uh, Bangladesh and, and Myanmar, as well as the national security advisors' uh, travels, appear to show a re-energization, if you like, of India's neighborhood policy. Uh, over the past six years, there have also been strains at various points, with Nepal over the constitution, now over the map, uh, with Bangladesh over the Citizenship Amendment Act. Uh, so my question really to start this discussion, is India's policy in need of reworking? Let me begin by uh, welcoming the fact that uh, there have been uh, several important visits uh, by Foreign Secretary uh, Harsh Shingla to uh, our neighbor, neighboring countries. Um, also, you referred to the fact that, uh, you know, the Forum for Maritime Security Cooperation uh, amongst the island nations um, has also been uh, revived. And uh, this is uh, something that uh, needs to be welcomed. My uh, problem is that, uh, you know, um, sometimes we find that, uh, you know, our, our uh, neighborhood diplomacy is uh, something which is more episodic in character uh, rather than something which is, you know, part of a process, part of a more continuous engagement uh, with the neighbors. And uh, unless we uh, perhaps carry forward what you see as this flurry of activity, which you say, into a constant and high-level engagement at various levels, at the leadership level, at the bureaucratic level, at the peoples-to-people -people level. Uh, you know, this has to be something which is part and parcel of a long-term policy of consolidating our uh, relations with the neighborhood, uh, of uh, making uh, certain that, you know, uh, India's interests are, you know, constantly uh, sort of... Uh, you know, uh, kept in focus uh, by constant, constant, uh, constant dialogue, uh, and uh, as I said, engagement with the with the neighborhood. Um, if a crisis occurs, we become very, very active. Uh, once the crisis, you know, sort of diminishes, then we sort of lose interest. Uh, that is not the way in which you can nurture a, a good uh, neighborhood policy. Interesting. Um, uh, Dr. Xavier, uh, would you agree, Ambassador Sarn makes the case that while these uh, uh, neighborhood forays are welcome, they must not be episodic and only dealing with high-level visits? Yes, absolutely. Um, the more stability in India's neighborhood policy in terms of continuity and multiple levels of engagement, the better. But four quick points on this, uh, uh, Swasini. I think number one, there's no single Indian neighborhood policy, right? So we have three competing, sometimes cooperating tracks um, that overlap, sometimes clash, sometimes are aligned, 
that explain India's policies towards its neighbors. There's a political track, which you rightly mentioned, with unprecedented outreach from Prime Minister Modi in terms of visits to leaders, phone calls during the pandemic, a clearly high-level political engagement that is very strong. At the second track, you have a security level in terms of, for example, Indian support to Sri Lanka uh, before and during and after the, the uh, terror attacks uh, uh, um, uh, in Colombo. So a lot of intelligence, security cooperation, a geostrategic angle, defense approach to the neighborhood, I would say a classical approach to the neighborhood. And then you have what is, I would argue, the most important approach, which, which is a bureaucratic, economic, diplomatic approach to the neighborhood, which is fleshing out the various connectivity agendas, whether it's a greater railway connectivity, road connectivity, development assistance, uh, digital connectivity with its neighbors. That is really what will take India's regional interests forward rather than the political and security track, which are also important, but I would say the only fundamental uh, uh, approach is really this economic connectivity track that India will have to work very hard on. Uh, second, I think there's constant work in progress as neighborhood policy is, is impossible uh, as a task. I think any Indian diplomat that has dealt with the neighborhood will confess that it's impossible to get all ducks in a row. Uh, there are very, very different countries. Let's not forget that Bangladesh is not a small country with its population. In fact, it's also not a poor country anymore because in terms of GDP per capita, it's now a wealthier country than India as of this year. Uh, third, I think, you know, if India's... Um, policy towards the neighborhood now over the last 10 to 20 years, in particular over the last five years, has been to increase connectivity, interdependence, integration as a form of strategic leverage. I would risk an assessment saying that India is doing more than ever now on that front, but that's still far too little and far too slow, given what is the competition from China and other states. I think that is really the last point I'd like to make that China has done India a huge favor by coming in into South Asia, by delivering infrastructure financing, by delivering on, you mentioned, scholarships, educational exchanges. All of that Chinese engagement has pushed India to do much more um, in its neighborhood um, and abandon the luxury of taking these smaller neighbors uh, as countries that are perpetually aligned with India and therefore taking them for granted, which is no longer sustainable. All right, so, so minimize uh, concerns about the big neighbor. Um, Dr. Xavier, uh, the External Affairs Minister uh, Jay Shankar speaks of the necessity in the region of generosity with firmness. Do you think that's the way forward? We've seen uh, the government in the past taking a very tough line when it comes to Pakistan. Also when it came to Nepal and the constitution and uh, the blockade that followed, or uh, whether it was with cutting uh, you know, visits to the Maldives because of uh, its differences with the former uh, uh, leader there, with Sri Lanka, a very fractious relationship with the Rajapaksas, if you like. Do you think the firmness is necessary for India uh, to, uh, to uh, take its neighborhood policy forward as, as much as the generosity? So generosity obviously is not a new concept. It comes from the 1990s. It comes from the language Ambassador Saran was mentioning about asymmetry, about first mover, about India being willing to go the extra mile uh, to open its markets, to deliver, to support cooperative uh, initiatives in the region. In fact, I, I'm, I remember Prime Minister Modi speaking in the relationship with Nepal about India being a Sherpa for example, for Nepal, about being willing to carry Nepal forward to support Nepal. 
But I think on the firmness side, uh, absolutely. I mean, that's the traditional, traditional language of, of international politics. But I'd say more than firmness, um, clarity is needed. And that means setting clear red lines of what India expects from its neighborhood, from its neighboring countries, and what it will see as an um, hostile move or inimical move. And I think on that, Delhi has some more work to do. Uh, it is very easy to accuse any of India's neighboring countries of being too close to China, but it's very difficult to set out the exact terms of what Sri Lanka could, should do with China or not, and that really hurts security interests. So I'm only concerned that sometimes the, the larger geostrategic reasoning of China as a security threat is used as an uh, excuse to uh, limit Bangladesh's capacity to deepen its relations with uh, China or accept Chinese investment in, in its own infrastructure modernization. So that leads me back to the point that naturally all these countries in India's neighborhood will try to balance. They will always be anxious about India, which is de facto the uh, uh, giant in this, in this um, geography. And therefore, you also want to avoid emphasizing cultural proximity, civilizational likeness in your speeches, in your statements, because such language will naturally be received, will naturally inflate uh, the concerns and anxieties uh, among the domestic uh, citizens in, in, in these neighboring countries that see India as, um, as a, with, with always with more concern than they see China or any other uh, neighboring country. So the only way to really solve all this is, as I mentioned before, to focus on creating the, la the larger interdependence in this, in this region that will give India strategic leverage. Uh, that is one thing, again, we can learn from China. It is Chinese economic engagement uh, with Nepal, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka that has, been, uh, that has led uh, China to increase its strategic political leverage over these countries. In fact, your own studies, Dr. Xavier, have found that China has outpaced India on several parameters in the last few years, whether it is on trade with these South Asian countries, infrastructure, investment, tourism, education. And now we're seeing China's forays in COVID assistance in the neighborhood as well. Um, is there a way to counter that? Has India just simply been uh, blindsided in this? No, I think naturally, we live now in a region that is an open competitive market to use an economic uh, image. That means that all these countries in India's neighborhood used to depend and rely much more on in India in the past, but now are adopting a first come first served policy. Uh, they have an open doors policy and they don't care if it is uh, Chinese ventilators or Indian ventilators that are reaching uh, their capitals first just to, to address certain emergencies like during this current pandemic. So that again leads India, as I mentioned, that leads India to put, leads India to, or pushes India to do much more. And it has, if you look at the various connectivity initiatives um, uh, that, we, that we have identified that India has taken over the last few years, I mean, in terms of basic energy interdependence, infrastructural connectivity, uh, grants and loans to the neighborhood, the numbers have been going up. And that is not just because India is feeling more generous towards its neighbors, it's because India is in a tight spot facing the competition you rightly mentioned from China. So it is a reaction in a sense. Uh, Mr. Sang, would you like to weigh in on this idea of whether firmness is necessary along with generosity? 
you spoke earlier about the the push factors if you like tough domestic policies in india like the ca like the map disputes leads to reactions in our neighbors but do we actually need to deal with some amount of firmness you know i think uh, if, if diplomacy is not a simple game of you know either being tough or uh, or uh, being generous uh, i think uh, it is a much more uh, nuanced much more uh, complex uh, exercise so yes uh, i think the bottom line should be that uh, if you have determined what your uh, key interests are what your vital interests are uh, as far as the uh, region of south asia is concerned uh, that uh, those uh, you know thresholds uh, should not be crossed uh, and i think uh, as uh, constantino pointed out uh, i think it should be uh, good for us to generally let it be known what our uh, red lines uh, are sure. uh, but i think what uh, is perhaps uh, much more uh, important is that uh, if we are looking at uh, for example uh, the uh, threat that we perceive from greater chinese penetration into the region uh, what is going to be our coping strategy so obviously if we try to uh, match uh, china dollar for dollar or you know uh, road for road or project for project uh, i think we'll be constantly trying to uh, catch up i think that's uh, in my uh, view that's uh, not the right kind of policy to follow i think what is very important to perhaps uh, sit down and work out is what really are the strengths that india has what are the assets that india has uh, in terms of you know uh, really uh, sort of uh, you know consolidating its um, you know relationship with uh, the neighbors and for with uh, different neighbors uh, these assets may be not exactly the uh, same but yes connectivity is certainly a very very important uh, area building up uh, connections with uh, all our neighbors Uh, whether it is through you know the building of highways or railways or revival of uh, riverine transportation as it is happening in the northeast or building up for example a sub regional uh, you know energy grid uh, all these are uh, things that we can uh, do because what they do is they bring into play uh, what is one of the greatest assets which we have with respect to all our neighbors and that is proximity all right so let me ask uh, you that is something which proximity proximity so the proximity is something that can really be uh, sort of uh, made into a big leverage uh, precisely by having uh, you know greater connectivity but the connectivity that we have invested in in terms of you know uh, these these uh, transportation uh, linkages uh, this has to be linked together with what i have you know constantly spoken about the software of connectivity there is no point in having a glass top highway connecting india say to bangladesh but you know trucks having to stop at the border for hours and hours uh, because the you know procedures for allowing uh, you know cargo or people to move uh, is still archaic uh, so over a number of our border areas what we find is that even though the physical connectivity is there uh because the 
you know, primacy of our security concerns. Um, in fact, the movement of goods or peoples or services across the borders uh, is something which is still uh, still not uh, as as good as, for example, what we find in Southeast Asia or what we find, for example, in Europe. Uh, so I think we need to address uh, that uh, as well. That connectivity is not merely, you know, the building of roads or railways, but also making certain that uh, we are able to utilize those as real platforms, real economic corridors, uh, allowing the smooth transit of goods and peoples and services. Uh, by the way, one of the things that we need to <laughs> be considered is that, you know, we constantly talk about, you know, the importance of transit, for example, uh, through Bangladesh to our northeast. We talk about the importance of transit, for example, through Pakistan to the Gulf or to Central Asia. Uh, what many people do not realize is that as far as most of our neighbors are concerned, we are the most important transit country. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, we do not, uh, you know, offer the kind of services uh, for efficient you know, transit through India as uh, would have been, uh, could have been possible. Why can't we, for example, give national treatment to our neighbors with respect to the use of our transportation uh, network or to the use of our, our um, uh, you know, uh, ports uh, for, for their exports and imports? Why limit them to this port or that port or limit them only to one or two corridors? Uh, let it be open to uh, uh, everyone in terms of the more competitive environment which we face today in south asia what you should be aiming at is how do you present yourself as the most efficient as the best possible alternative uh, in terms of the in terms of the economic uh, you know uh, development of uh, our neighbors if you can do that I think the picture will dramatically change. Interesting point. In fact, also for uh, India to be an airport hub for the region, that's still an unrealized dream. Absolutely, now, sure. Now, now, both of you have spoken about uh, the China factor, but we're also seeing increasingly other countries, especially the United States, as it re-pivots to Asia and re-engages with the Indo-Pacific policy, and particularly South Asia. We saw uh, last month uh, a US defense agreement, uh, an initial agreement, really, with the Maldives, uh, the US is pursuing the Millennium Corporation Challenge um, through South Asia and Nepal and Sri Lanka as well. Um, my question being, should India see the US's engagement as possibly a counter to China in the South Asian region as a boon or a cause for future concern where India could get cut out? Um, if uh, uh, Dr. Xavier, if you could start. As far as I see uh, India's neighborhood policy, the approach has been that greater partnership through coordination and cooperation with other extra regional powers, except China, has been welcome. That includes foremost Japan, uh, the India-Japan discussions and coordination of policies across South Asia have increased tremendously over the last five years. It includes also the US, uh, the French um, and other Russians also, for example. So I think India's neighborhood policy has um, been marked by an open doors approach uh, to coordinate policies and reduce redundancies. So in many ways, if you look at what's happening in Nepal, the British have a development cooperation program, the Japanese have theirs, the Americans have theirs, India has its own. 
And often these countries have been working in parallel without communicating, coordinating, which has only benefited China because it plays a divide and rule approach and has been able to uh, make the most out of it. What has been changing, I think, over the last year is that India has been much more favorable and open to coordinating and aligning policies in South Asia. That has an advantage because it increases synergies between you know, infrastructure financing, for example, with the Japanese and Sri Lanka, uh, uh, on political issues in the Maldives between the United States and India to deal with various regime changes there and emergency responses and a certain division of labor emerging between Washington and Delhi. But at the same time, of course, it opens up a precedent uh, because often the argument from China is if you're letting the Americans into the region, we also have the right to establish our own presence and expand on it. So that's a tough line for India to navigate. But certainly, I'd say bottom line, the approach is one of working closer together with the so-called like-minded partners that are fellow democracies that think alike about regimes, developmental priorities in these countries, and also about economic connectivity with the rest of the world. Mr. Saran, how would you see the U.S.'s engagement here? You know, I have a slightly uh, different view. Um, you know, I do not have a, an issue with, uh, uh, you know, since uh, we are not in a position to really match the kind of resources that China is able to deploy in the neighborhood, uh, it does make sense uh, for us to join other partners who are currently benign partners like the United States or uh, with, uh, you know, Japan, as was uh, mentioned. But uh, let me give you the example of uh, the time that I was uh, ambassador in Nepal. Uh, it is not that we were not coordinating our activities uh, with the Americans or the British or even other uh, actors. But, you know, it was with the clear understanding that uh, India would be in the lead, that the, uh, you know, uh, we would welcome support, we would welcome coordination uh, from the other uh, powers, but uh, with the clear understanding that uh, it is uh, India which would be in the lead in any such uh, partnership. Uh, so in the current phase, my sense is that perhaps that element is getting weakened, where perhaps the United States of America or Japan or some of the other powers may be pursuing uh, projects or activities which may not necessarily be aligned to what India's objectives may be. And that it could be a problem, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, future. Uh, so the answer to that uh, dilemma is, uh, yes, uh, let us welcome whatever, uh, you know, support we can get in terms of, you know, uh, making sure that uh, our uh, neighbors uh, have uh, a choice when it comes to undertaking various kinds of, you know, economic activities or infrastructure projects. But uh, in, um, in having that kind of a, of, of a uh, cooperation or coordination with other, other uh, major countries, uh, I would hope that uh, India's you know, uh, objectives, India's interests uh, remain, uh, remain as, as the primary element. All right, final question um, I, I'd like both of you to weigh in on is, we've got through this discussion without mentioning the overarching um, regional organization that for 35 years, really, or 30 years at least, 
uh, meant South Asia, SARC, the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation. Um, clearly with Pakistan in the chair uh, and India making it clear, India will not, uh, the prime minister will not travel to Pakistan to attend the SARC summit. Uh, it would seem that SARC engagements have been put on hold indefinitely. So my question to both of you, is SARC dead? And is SARC necessary at all? Um, uh, Dr. Xavier, would you like to go first? I would say that more than SARC, the format of the regional organization that SARC has adopted is outdated and does not serve any longer the complex, fluid, uh, regional cooperation agenda. Um, so I think India has taken a, pragmat a pragmatic policy, um, unfortunate policy, like a, as often has been recognized by the Indian government, but pragmatic in the sense that Pakistan has taken a very different approach to regional connectivity. It is mostly one as a hub between China and the Gulf or Central Asian regions, so towards the West and the North, while India therefore had to respond and seek to gravitate the subcontinent more towards the South, the Indian Ocean region, and the East across the Bay of Bengal with Southeast Asia. So effectively, what we've been witnessing over the last four years now is another chapter in the split of the subcontinent between India and Pakistan that therefore has manifested itself uh, in the um, stagnation of, of SARC. India's response to, to overcome that has been at various levels. Um, India has often taken several bilateral shortcuts. It has tried to do bilaterally what it cannot do any longer regionally because it takes longer, it is more complex, and SARC is not available in that sense anymore. It has taken new initiatives like the one Ambassador Saddam mentioned or revived the one, for example, on security with Sri Lanka and the Maldives. It has revived, of course, BIMSTEC and put in a lot of energy in strengthening that institution. It has worked the other quadrilateral, which we don't talk so much about, but is very important, called the BBIN framework uh, on motor vehicle and water governance between Bhutan, Nepal, India, and Bangladesh. So I think India has taken a customized case-by-case -case approach to effectively pursue the most important objective, which is increasing connectivity across different functional sectors in the region and no longer hold its cooperation agenda hostage um, to a consensus at SARC, which will always uh, depend on a Pakistani veto. Ambassador Sarn, I'll give you the last word of BBIN and BIMSTEC really alternatives. And the question is SARC dead and should it be? BBIN and uh, BIMSTEC uh, should be pursued uh, for their own uh, merits. Uh, I do not uh, see that uh, they uh, can really um, replace a SARC. Uh, if we consider, uh, you know, regional integration, eventually, eventually to, in fact, uh, cover the whole of South uh, Asia. Uh, even if we are having difficulties currently uh, with Pakistan, uh, even if uh, Pakistan's orientation is uh, towards uh, more towards China or uh, uh, towards its western uh, flank. Uh, I think uh, the uh, overall objective and the ideal of a fully uh, integrated uh, South Asia is something which we should always keep in front of us. I don't think we should abandon that particular vision uh, because that is important for us. 
the other point i would like to make is that uh, you know as far as our other neighbors are concerned with the perhaps the exception of uh, bhutan currently uh, they are interested in sark they do see sark as a a worthwhile uh, you know platform for regional uh, cooperation now if india is going to turn its back on sark uh, you know there could be a possibility uh, since this has been brought up before of uh, china being welcomed into sark you know if india walks out for example uh, and i think india would walk out if uh, china were brought in but um, if that were to happen our challenges would become even worse so i think even though uh, sark at this point of time is not functioning as the best instrument for uh, you know um, yeah, promoting regional cooperation i think there are various other reasons particularly with respect to how the political dynamics in this region is uh, working out uh, that we should keep that vision uh, alive uh, i so i would not uh, be in a hurry to abandon sark all right don't leave the south asian dream uh, just yet Uh, gentlemen ambassador saran dr xavier thank you so much for joining us this has been the hindus parley podcast thank you